it's impossible to have that feeling of oneness with your local or regional environment when it's being desolated. And I began to realise that environments that were damaged and desolated were also causing damage and desolation to my mental states, my mental landscape. Over the past 45 years, I've worked in every major coral reef region in the world. And no one's going to ever repeat these studies because that world no longer exists. Isn't that sad? One human lifetime. That's terrible. Climate change is a little like death. It's invisible. It's happening all the time. Yet we just can't think about it. This reluctance is entirely understandable. American psychologist Daniel Gilbert said his profession could barely dream up a better scenario for paralysis than climate change. It's a scenario so vast and incomprehensible, it's more than earned its title as a wicked problem. Sometimes it feels like we're the only people that can see kind of the impending problems. Probably shouldn't say disaster, but... Well, maybe it is. You know, we could see that things are getting much worse. Temperatures are rising, much more frequent heat waves. We know that we might send it beyond a tipping point where we warm the climate to a point where something changes and then we can never get it back. And I think we just recognise that we're going down a path of destruction. It's chronic, it's ongoing, it's slowly evolving, it's largely intangible, and yet it's profoundly impactful now and into the future. And that makes this an enormous and very existential crisis. It's sort of like a, a gathering darkness, and almost everything I did was sort of driven by this notion that we can't let this happen. Nine of the world's ten warmest years have happened since the year 2000. July 2016 was the hottest July in 136 years of records and it followed 14 record-breaking months. The ocean saw the largest marine heatwave ever this year. Globally, ocean temperatures are soaring regardless of El Niño weather events. Last summer, hundreds of kilometres of giant kelp forests along the West Australian coast died and many won't recover after the Indian Ocean was an unprecedented five degrees too warm. Swathes of mangroves across the top end also died. Tasmania's sodden peat ground burned for the first time last summer and 20% of the coral of the Great Barrier Reef is dead. In future, Victorians can expect their firestorms to increase. Across the country, there'll be more droughts, major increases in heat waves, unstable wet seasons and more intense storms. The people you'll hear from today are living with these details and their implications in their daily working lives. They're the experts, and for them it becomes about more than facts and figures. There are emotional responses to observing this changing landscape close at hand. We tend to see climate change as a hugely important social and psychological issue as well. 
There are three reasons the Australian Psychological Society is so concerned about climate change. It set up a public interest team for environment and disaster response. And Susie Burke is a senior psychologist. One is that human behaviour is driving climate change and, and as experts in human behaviour, psychologists ought to be concerned about it and interested in it. And secondly, it has an enormous impact on psychological and physical health and that's of great concern for us. And thirdly, the solutions to climate change involve broad changes in human behaviour at all levels and as experts in how humans change their behaviour, that's an area that we should and are particularly interested in. What are some of the direct responses to thoughts of climate change that you or I or a listener might feel? So some of the feelings that a person might have when they hear about climate change that we know from conversations with people, from some of the research, from qualitative as well as quantitative research are feelings of sadness, distress, guilt, shame, anger, helplessness, despair, loss and grief. So it's a huge complexity of feelings. Just that about everything, people can basically. It's just about Ex- everything, that's right. Except joy, happiness. Uh, you know. um, <laughs> that's right. For all the scientists living with this burden of knowledge, even from within the scientific community itself, the journey's been one of doubt, ridicule, attacks on integrity and, finally, acceptance. The Great Barrier Reef is Australia's litmus test for global warming and its marine biologist researchers have seen, more than most of us, the evidence of big changes. And for them, literally immersed in their subject, it becomes an intimate relationship. I think from the very beginning, as a boy, standing on the edge of the Great Barrier Reef when you know it drops away and you've got that clear blue water. There's a sort of a magic, and I, and I can still remember feeling this. Here was the Great Barrier Reef in the middle of the ocean, and I think I experienced this when I was sort of 11 or 12. You're standing there and below you are sharks and turtles and incredible creatures, you know, colourful corals and so on, that it was all just there, right in front of you. Ove Hugelberg is a marine biologist and a professor at the University of Queensland. He first realised and then publicised coral bleaching's implications in the late 1990s. And he's still enchanted by the reef. Absolutely, although I must admit I long for the days of not knowing as much as I do today because when you're at that point of I don't want to say naivety, but you're, you don't know all those things. Everything is a magical mystery. So you approach it as a technical person, as a person that thinks about the structure of the reef and so on, and there's a new sort of reef that builds up in your mind. And, of course, in a time of climate change, I look at these things and I worry. I, you know, I know that going back to the places where I did some of my PhD research, that these places have been transformed. So it's gone from that sort of innocence looking over the edge of the Australian continent and wondering, wow, to now sort of a deep sense of of worry and, you know, it gnaws at you. Mm. We have to do something. We have to do something. Coral reefs are home to about a third of all marine species at some stage in their life cycle. So when you wipe out coral reefs, you're wiping out those third of all species and they're obviously going to be enormous knock-on effects. 
And that's the start of a mass extinction. And I, I'm absolutely sure that we are entering now one of the great mass extinctions that have ravaged the Earth in the past. That's veteran marine scientist Charlie Veron, and we'll hear more from him shortly. But his isn't an abstract prediction for far distant decades. Recent studies are showing, just as Ove first predicted in 1999, that the reef's on track for two coral bleaching and ocean heatwave events a year, within 20 years. I remember one of the senior academics at the University of Queensland sort of coming through my, you know, the door flying open and, you know, he strode in saying, what's this, you know, um, as it was hitting the media, which it hit pretty hard. And I'd also then, in fact, um, wrote a, a report for Greenpeace on this particular issue that was in the peer-reviewed literature of science. So it's, you know, it's how can you sort of work with Greenpeace? And I said, well, I'll work with anyone to get the message out on this. This is super serious. Andrew King is a young scientist who's grown up in a warming world. He's Climate Extremes Research Fellow at Melbourne University, and he's recently found that human impact on climate means that the ocean heatwaves Australia had this year were 175 times more likely to happen than they would have before the Industrial Revolution. We also find that because of the projected warming that we're expected to experience over the next few decades, that the sea temperatures that cause the bleaching would be pretty much average by the mid-2030s. Which is 15 years away. Exactly. So it's remarkable that something so extreme, even in the current climate, will be a, a normal occurrence in the not-too-distant future. Right. <laughs> it's, it's very scary. Yeah. It's scary on an intellectual level. It's also really scary on an emotional level, I think. That's right. I think people always expect a slightly more optimistic message from climate scientists. So usually when we give interviews, um, at the end we're asked, you know, what can we actually do about this? And I think maybe people get the wrong impression that if we just head in the right direction, we will be fine. But that's... To be honest, not the case. We need to take much stronger action than we are now. And to be honest, even with very strong action now, even if we really reduce our greenhouse gas emissions very quickly, we're, not, we're probably not going to save the reef, which isn't really the kind of news that people want to hear. That is the first time I think I've heard someone articulate that. And I've got this weird, sinking, anxious feeling in my chest hearing it. Given all your knowledge, you carry actually a tremendous burden of knowledge. Do you wake in the night? To be honest, I think I've got used to it. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you learn over time and you gradually realise more and more that we're damaging the climate beyond repair, damaging the earth beyond repair. Charlie Veron's observed the impact of climate change ramp up since he first dived in the late 1960s and saw things no one had seen before. I was entering a world which just was utterly overwhelming. It just became part of me. It takes over your mind. I started working on coral because I fell in love with them. 
He's been chief scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science, has built a naming system for corals which is now used globally, and he's identified and named 20% of the world's corals himself. He describes ocean warming as like heating water on a stove. It takes time to come to the temperature of the heating source. In the ocean's case, it takes 15 to 20 years. We're seeing a response now to the atmospheric conditions of the 1990s. Um, when we had, what, 330 parts per million carbon dioxide, now we have crossed the 400 parts per million mark and heading on. Uh, you don't really need to be a scientist to think that one through. And even if we stopped everything that we're doing now, the oceans have by no means caught up in 15 years is the blink right. of an eye. So really what we're saying is that there won't be a reef in 2035. Well, I... You don't want to say that, do no, you? No, I don't want to say that. Why um, not? Because it's hard to say, but I keep on being justly criticised for... I'm caught in a, in, a, in, a, in a problem here because what I say is what I believe the science says. So that's what I do. I say what the science says. And then I know that hope is... And actually, is a really essential ingredient for getting people to think and and to do things that will make the world a better place. They have to have hope. If you lose hope, then then really you've you've lost the plot altogether. Um, so I'm I'm not speaking at these conferences anymore um, because I can't match what the science says with any feeling of hope. And that's really, it is hopeless, and that's bad. Mm. So I shouldn't even be talking to you about this now, um, because normally I just, I just shut up. It's best I do. It's best I just don't speak out anymore. This is the problem with this business. You know, if I speak um, with, you know, the, the purity of science, this is a, going to be a decline, uh, you know, like no other. People think you're alarmist, when in fact you're really just conveying alarming news. And so the last um, 20 years I've spent um, being careful with my language not to put people off while still trying to tell or um, communicate the reality of this issue. And and I think many climate scientists have the same problem. I mean, what they're, you know, um, reporting on uh, with uh, great confidence uh, in many cases in terms of, of scientific consensus is pretty alarming. Well, it's, I, I reckon you find it really hard to articulate it and to say it, in fact. I've, I'm yeah. noticing this. Is the reef going to be pretty much dead, as we know it, within 20 years? If we continue on the current <laughs> pathway... <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, qualification, qualification, qualification. OK, look, we're on a trajectory where no matter what we do, we are going to end up with um, 90% less coral than we've got today. Only 5 to 7% of Australians deny climate change is a reality. But they're vocal and they regularly, personally and publicly accuse scientists of somehow not living in the real world. Heatwave researcher Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick from UNSW points out that, of course, scientific expertise has brought us every modern convenience we have. 
We looked at some sobering graphs together which showed per degree of global warming per season there'll be 10 extra heatwave days in southern Australia and 40 in the tropics. Sarah told me why the science needs to be taken seriously and why she hesitates to speak the figures. One, scientists are very conservative. Climate scientists are very conservative. We, we don't go, oh, look, let's just, you know, muck around with a few maps and, oh, here you go, here's some pretty lines on a plot. We spend hours, thousands upon thousands of hours, making sure we're doing it the right way, checking with other people who are doing it the right way, double-checking, rechecking. you know, I don't know how many times I redo something just to make sure that it's absolutely 100% correct before I divulge too much. And also they're scary, like, no one really wants to know that, you know, by two degree warming, we'll have an extra 20 or so heatwave days here in Australia. I mean, that's, that's feasible in my lifetime, if not more warming the way we're going right now. So it's, it's, it's scary. Like, I want people to know because it's practically important information, but it's not a good news story. Scientists, they're very factual and they've got to stick to facts. I don't go out on any limb, as it were. And so that becomes part of who you are. And that, of course, creates a heck of a conflict with another person who I am. That's a very emotional person. And the two clash, in my case, and in the case of a lot of my colleagues, very hard. Very hard to be factual about seeing so much destruction. It's like being factual about uh, trench warfare. It's all very well to study numbers and where trenches are and who gets killed and so on. But it's a very different thing to actually see it happening and to be in the trenches. Then your facts sort of become almost irrelevant. You become emotional. This burden of knowledge is a challenge personally and politically, but it's also a challenge socially. How do those who carry it communicate the story, not only to the wider world, but to friends and family? Sarah Arthur is an environmental scientist living in Sydney and has changed the way her family lives to factor in adaptation to climate change. If I talk about it at a dinner party, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a clangor. Um, people were happy <laughs> until I spoke. It's, it's, very, it's very difficult to... To know, and it's not a nice thing to share, really. You feel like Cassandra, I can see this and it's not good. People who are naturally optimistic don't really want to think about it. People will take it as if you're slighting their way of life. And um, I think it's gone beyond that. And I don't really want to be the <laughs> somebody brings everybody down. I quite enjoy good times. <laughs> So I don't want to be that person. I don't think anybody really does, do they? <laughs> Forget climate change mitigation. I've formulated my family climate change adaption plan, what we will do over the next 10 years, what we will do over the next 20 years. I've got several decades of planning of where we will invest, where we will live, how we will live, what skills... I want to have for me what skills I want my daughter to have, readiness for the future. I'm not living in a tin hat in a bunker <laughs> with my tin of beans. It's not that, but it's a version of that. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of sad. And I don't talk to people about it because that brings them down. <laughs> Scientists, writers, philosophers, psychologists are all trying to find their way to communicate the issue. 
Glenn Albrecht is a philosopher living near the open-cut mining which dominates the Hunter Valley in central New South Wales. And he describes what triggered him to start thinking philosophically about his response. I was actually driving into the Hunter Valley to find the, the route taken by John Gould and his wife Elizabeth Gould when they were doing work on the birds of Australia. And when I saw the the Hunter Valley, instead of opening up and as I had imagined it by reading the accounts of the valley and its richness and its bird life, uh, instead there's this scene of utter desolation and that's the only way you can describe it. They're, they don't hide it any longer, it's too large to, to hide. So. What, you, did, what you did you do when you first laid eyes on that? Well, it, it's very hard to describe it, but you just... I think I uttered some kind of profanity and thinking, well, how could humans possibly do this to anywhere on Earth? I, th I think it was a genuine rush of anger that uh, my fellow human beings had done something which was catastrophically bad. Do you think you felt dizzy? No. No, I'm, I'm rock solid. I'm a philosopher. <laughs> I could just sit in my lounge room with my thumb stuck in my mouth, rocking back and forth, thinking about my next bottle of red wine, but I, I don't do that. I, I, I guess I'm impelled by the gravity of the situation to keep working. Glenn's created several names for these new emotions. I've got a number of different expressions for it. Uh, That's not right. good, is it? <laughs> no, it's an indication of the, the kind of times we live in. But it starts with uh, a generalised anxiety, which in the eco-psychology literature would be called uh, eco-anxiety, and a number of people have developed that idea, including myself. Eco-paralysis is where the information is, uh, is overwhelming and you, you feel gridlocked. It's not that useful to change the light bulbs when the uh, business down the road's spewing out millions of tonnes of carbon dioxide. At a personal level, you're kind of gridlocked. You can't do anything to solve the problem. Global dread is that feeling that the, the news is always gloomy and that the future is going to be bad. I mean, dread is a future-orientated concept. Uh, there's also the more personal and immediate impact of some kind of environmental trauma that's going on right in front of you, and I've called that Tierra trauma, where, you know, someone's cutting down your favourite tree right in front of you, you know, the fig trees in Lemon Street in Newcastle, or we need a term for that kind of immediate and quite in-your-face kind of impact. Some change is immediate where it's solastalgia being this form of homesickness when you're still at home. Usually the forces that are driving that are chronic, so it's, you know, truck by truck, the Hunter Valley's being shipped to China and India to be burnt and create global warming. That's a chronic change that's getting worse day by day, year by year. Climate activists and climate communicators and people who are working in climate action groups to develop projects in their communities and all those great people who are doing fantastic things to try to, you know, whip up some action and attention on climate change are really vulnerable to 
burning out or becoming overwhelmed and distressed. And one way of thinking about burnout is to think of the burn component being irritability and frustration or anger or cynicism or perhaps a bitterness towards an unresponsive public. That's the burn part of it. And the out component refers to that feeling of being drained and exhausted and passion and enthusiasm becoming depleted and even worse, feeling detached and wanting to get some distance, not just from others, but emotionally and cognitively from our work as well. And so burnout can often also be accompanied by sort of feeling guilty because you're not doing enough, feeling bad because you lost your passion and your zing and worrying that things are just getting worse and you're not doing anything about it. And uh, so it's really unpleasant, awful thing for people to experience. You know, I think you do end up sort of technically depressed because it is such a confronting thing and it's even more confronting when either the you know, people who haven't read the science, or the politicians or whatever, are ignoring it because, you know, it's it's in the too hard basket or they would prefer not to. I mean, some people have simply told me they don't believe it to be true because how could it be? This is the Great Barrier Reef. How depressing could that be? I, you know, I don't want this to happen. I get very depressed and I've had a state of mild chronic depression for a long time now. It's not possible for me to be otherwise because of my closest with nature and seeing the way that humans are destroying this planet. For me, it's very real. It's worse, in a way, because I am someone who actually can do something about it. I am someone who is listened to, and I have made a difference. And so I have to keep on doing that. It's not as if I can say, out oh, of hell with it, and, and, and go and do some gardening. So I'm trapped, and I just wish, I guess I wish that I had never heard of uh, mass bleaching. In the second part of this series, we explore hope, how scientists, thinkers, writers, and the everyday worried manage to find forward momentum and stay optimistic. So you have to look at ways to improve the planet in the ways that you can. Giving more than you take, make a difference, trying to leave a positive change earnestly sometimes, overly earnest, but um, trying to produce joy, trying to live magnificently. And it's hard. <laughs>